So to support yourself, you need to notice, you know, observe, and you might be impacted. And instead of neglecting and abandoning, you need to nurture and we repair instead of furthering the rupture that's happening. This breaks the cycle. To reason with someone is to motivate them to do or accept topics, ideas, and issues through discussion and having conversations. This podcast is about the relationship with ourself and the relationship with others, finding our stability in our self-worth and how do we actually be in healthy relationships. We find this out through connection, compassion, and communication. Reach out, connect with me, like, subscribe, comment. I want to unpack whatever it is that we can to really get to the nitty and gritty of finding out how do we get better in ourselves and how do we get better in our relationship. Hold up. Wait a minute. Something ain't right. No, no, no. No, he needs to know. Remember me before you Welcome back, welcome back, Reason With Me podcast. It's been a hot minute. I just want to start by apologizing. I have been so crazy busy uh, that it's just been hard to kind of get some guests on and you know even find time to do a little solo episode like today's. Um, but I still love you. Um, and I'm still here. Uh, for those who might be following me on Instagram, you might be up to date a little bit with where I'm at. Um, but I've just opened a clinic in Sydney in Crow's Nest and that's very exciting. And there's just been a lot going on. Um, which is why I thought I'd come on here today and really let you know what's been going on, but also hone in on the, I guess the really cool offering that I've got at the moment and, um, something that I'm really proud of and that I'm really excited about. So, um, I thought I'd jump on here and yeah, do a little solo episode on radically putting yourself first. So I have been in the process of writing an ebook not too long, pretty digestible, easy to read, can be obviously a little bit difficult, may bring up a little bit of an emotion, but the results allow you to be able to really get to the idea of what it would look like to put yourself first. So being able to show up for you, which will allow you to then show up in the rest of your life, in your relationships. And that, for me, as some of you may know in previous episodes, you know, it's really been my journey of learning and, you know, stepping into my authenticity and I guess, yeah, like finding me was a big part of whether or not I was going to be able to be a therapist, whether or not I was going to be able to keep going in general. Um, it really hit hard when I started to realize that everything was built around being needed and trying to get all my needs met by others, really being defined by my relationship, defined by my ability to help and fix and save others. And then when that didn't go well, crumbling and getting really negative and yeah, my 
old shitty patterned behaviors would just, you know, spill all over the place. And it was never, it was never pleasant. It was never nice, but I just didn't really know what was going on for me until I started to jump into some therapy. And I've sort of shared this before. I went into therapy for the first time and asked them to give me the tools to be able to help others that would make me feel better. <laughs> oh, funny. I got so angry at that guy because he wouldn't do that. He said, you've got your own shit, you know, you need to work on you. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So lo and behold, got rid of him. <laughs> He's a really nice guy, but it was a, yeah, something I wasn't ready for um, to start looking inward. and. Then the more and more I picked it apart, the more and more it had nothing to do with my relationships and had everything to do with long, 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 old, old, old past experiences that really defined and shaped the way that I saw the world. And um, that being like probably indirect messages that I told myself that I wasn't good enough or I wasn't worthy or I wasn't lovable. So I worked hard at trying to do those things to my own detriment. It's also allowed me, you know, that driving shame to succeed too because it's a real kick up the ass push because if you don't do this, you won't be good enough. So it was a wild ride. So the book is definitely a, Inside into me, but also the main reason why I do this work is to be able to share that with others in that we have to be able to put ourselves first, even if we love and our values are to support and to care and to connect with others, which we are innately meant to do. We're meant to be with other people. Regardless, though, the best way to do that is to be able to really know what's going on for you, really know how to kind of meet your own needs and know what those needs are primarily. So for me, I wanted to share this. It's kind of like a quick understanding of you and exploring that in a bit more detail with some exercises around your core beliefs to understand what's going on in the past. So today I thought this episode of the potty could be breaking that a little bit more down and starting to figure out how do we put ourselves first and what does that even mean? What is self-worth? You know, how do we create a little bit of change in that? How that relates and has anything to do with our relationships, I think is really important to look at. What does that cycle end up doing for us? Where do we start to identify our repeated patterns? How do we break that cycle? And then really lastly, how do we thrive? How do we get out of surviving to thriving? So I'm going to try and break that down into some bite-sized pieces today and give you a really good idea of how to support you. If you want to check out the book, it's called Find You, A Guide to Radically Putting Yourself First. There will be a link in the show notes today, um, but then also on my Instagram, there's a uh, link in that bio. Um, it's on my website, so if you are interested in that, um, there's some exercises that are in there that can really help you build some of that. So check that out. 
We've also got a lot of other things coming, some free guides on self-worth and codependency to be able to identify, is this me? Do I meet this criteria and should I be checking in and asking myself, do I want to keep doing that? Or how do I have some empowerment to change? So let's get straight into it and dig around for one of the most exciting solo episodes I've done and something that I'm really, really proud of and I hope it can connect and resonate with you. So let's start with a little bit of a recap on self-worth. Obviously, I've done a podcast on self-worth before. Um, I don't know which number it is. Pretty sure it's called That's a Bit of Me. Um, but let's do a little recap. So self-worth, you know, I think a lot of people throw around the term self-esteem and I don't think it's quite the same. Self-worth, I think, is really at the core of ourselves, our thoughts, our behaviors, and our emotions. I think it's how we value ourselves in the world, whether or not we think that we are worthy to be in it. I've spent a lot of time and a lot of years with low self-worth, and a sense of not quite being good enough. And yeah, I guess I went all about a lot of those years subconsciously filling this worth cup up with other people and different external things in my life. Uh, it left me feeling pretty lonely, um, pretty disconnected, like something was always kind of missing. And the best thing I ever did was get aware, you know, get compassionate and accountable to be able to grow into the authentic me I was looking for with solid core values and an overall sense of worthiness. So I guess I want to share some light on some of this stuff, what some of the warning signs are and what I'll kind of cover is maybe four indicators that will help you know where you sit with your self-worth and then what to do with all that to get better in yourself. The number one thing is we think that self-worth a lot of the time, this is very, very common, is that we seek self-worth um, or worth in general externally. Um, you know, I think, you know, really learning early on, I learned that I put a big emphasis and value on external things that actually did not determine my worth as a human. So some of those things might be, you know, the external things of worth might be other people, you know, caring about what others think and say and feel or do. Um, another one, being in a relationship, like allowing that to determine whether or not we're, we're worthy is whether or not we're in a relationship and how that relationship's going. Then there's the whole pop popularity contest. I think, you know, having the most amount of friends, you know, lots of followers on Instagram, you know, whatever that might be. So, Another thing that's sort of yeah, really external, you know, our appearance, whether or not we look a certain way, what we kind of need to be to, to be aesthetically pleasing, you know, be skinny enough, be strong enough, all those sort of things are very external things. It's, it's, it's our look, right? Money, oh, my God, so external. If I get more money or I earn more, I'll be more and then I'll be able to do more, right? So I guess our achievements. You know, if I get things done, then I'll matter. If I keep doing and achieving and succeeding, then that's what's going to create me feeling good about me. Um, the job, our career, you know, I need to have the best job. 
I need to be the best in my career. I need to keep getting promotions because when I do, then I will be good enough. Look, a lot of these things we can't deny are good and feel good to experience. they're, They're still accomplishments. They're still achievements in our life. But what they all say about themselves is none of them determine whether or not you're worthy to exist as a human being, whether or not you are valuable. You're this, you're that. You are still worthy. This shouldn't change only if you achieve, only if you, you know, are liked, only if you are in a relationship. So we really need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. As some of these external things, they sit outside of us and they really can't define us. You're the decider of your worthiness. Even if you got a biased view and don't believe it, you're still bloody worthy to be here. The next point, the next indicator, I guess, whether or not you got some impacted self-worth is really the voice of unreason. A lot of us fit into this category. I definitely do, um, or did. Um, I'll have to check myself so that I don't fall back into it. But it's kind of like a negative belief or thought about ourselves that comes up internally every now and then saying this message of I'm not enough. These sort of messages, you know, they're just self-critic bullshit, really. It's like kicking us when we're down. Uh, The more this voice of unreason has spoken up over time, the more weight, the louder, the more harmful, and ultimately the more believable that that message becomes. So, you know, it's a real kick in the guts. It kind of starts to spill out sideways. And if we beat ourselves up, we're bound to start to show our cracks, start to slip a little, and then eventually fall, you know, and that's a really hard thing to mend. So we start to look at coping mechanisms that's going to help mend that. Drugs, alcohol, food, risk-taking behaviors, you know, isolating ourselves, shutting down, escaping. The voice of unreason is those shaming beliefs that unfortunately, as a society, we're kind of built into this thinking that we need to do more, we need to get more. And obviously that can be very, very limiting. But there's those core beliefs that we're not enough, that has unfortunately a universal standpoint. Third indicator when we start going out instead of in. So when we experience something difficult, right, it it becomes a pretty common space to worry much more about everything and everyone else instead of our own shit, instead of our own reality. So, you know, I got to hold myself accountable in a lot of these spaces. And this is why I write about it and I talk about it and I preach it is I love helping people. There's no doubt about that. I love doing what I do and I love serving. But boy, does that come at a cost if we're not careful. A lot of our values growing up might have been to put yourself first, to serve, to sacrifice, you know, Mother Teresa, Jesus, all these people that, you know, Gandhi, that we kind of say, these people just give, give, give. And they, they look after every single person no matter what. But over time, this becomes such a common space that we forget what we need and want how to express what's truly kind of going on for us. You know, that kind of thing can really start moving into that reality of we need, we need to be needed. We need a support. We need a help because then we'll feel good. 
then it's what starts to happening is like, I am nothing without doing this for others. I'm nothing unless I'm able to serve. And we can see the path of how limiting that can be. When we do so much for others, you know, it becomes like a constant. And what can happen when we do that excessively is we can get resentful, um, start to feel empty and dissatisfied. So people can't love on the same level that we can love. Or, you know, we think that everyone's taking advantage of us because they're not, you know, returning the favor. And that's dangerous, right? It's dangerous thinking to try and compare um, with others and, and, and have expectations on them to do certain things. So the danger of constantly trying to meet the needs of others and pleasing others is then not realizing you might not be getting treated that well either, but you keep doing and doing and doing. It's kind of like, I love them because they love me. <laughs> so we keep loving and loving and loving and they love that you love them. So we think that's, that's the ticket, you know? And, um, what we really need to kind of look in is do they, do they actually treat us well? Do they, do they love us? Do they show that? When we don't have respect or worth in ourselves, we can kind of be blinded by this stuff, uh, which causes us a lot of emotional pain. When we don't speak up and stand up for ourselves, set some boundaries, then we're really just focusing on looking outward instead of inward. And that can be, you know, disempowering can allow people to start sort of stepping all over us. And, um, people just know we're going to say yes. People just know we're going to have that helping hand. And eventually we start sacrificing and abandoning ourselves. So we go look in. If you're looking out, we got a problem. Number four, last one, not attending to your own garden. So the number one biggest, most consequential forfeiting of ourselves is when we stop taking care of ourselves. So self-care, right? When we don't do true self-care with ourselves, then we're essentially sacrificing and abandoning ourselves. We start to buckle when that happens. We buckle from the, you know, self-pleasure, the self-betrayal, the lack of self-protection, self-compassion, and self-love. When these warning signs start to kind of flare up, we get really impacted and we start to not feel great at all. We start to have those messages come back that we're not lovable, we're not worthy. And it's really easy to drop all these things that we do do to support us. So when we start not doing what we need to do for us so that we can do things for others, you're going to have impacted self-worth. If you've got this, you know, inner critic and you've got this way of looking externally to be able to feel good, then we'll choose that over something else. You know, when we've got our all our non-negotiable self-care in order, what essentially that does is means that I set boundaries with myself that I'm willing to be worthy of myself and look after myself. But if someone, you know, a new relationship, let's just say, for example, says, let's do this on Saturday morning, you go, oh, yeah, that's self-care. I'll be able to hang out with someone that I'm starting to like. But then we sacrifice the thing that we had in place that we always do instead. So eventually when that relationship sort of turns or goes away or is busy or whatever might happen that sort of puts that blockage in it, then we are left feeling a little bit more empty because we're not doing the thing that makes us feel good or makes us feel worthy. Very, 
scary and dangerous place to be. When we stop caring for ourselves, increases the risk of low mood, fatigue, overthinking, poor decision-making, I guess unhealthy habits, anxiety, and ultimately how we continue to think that they are not, that we are not, that you are not good enough and you feel shame about that experience. Okay, hang in there. Don't leave yet. We will get to what do we do with all this stuff. But I guess first, to expand on some of this and sort of looking at like, where does this come from? Like, why would I start to think that I'm not good enough? If I'm born inherently worthy, then how the hell did I start to think that I'm not good enough, that I'm not worthy, that I'm unlovable, that I don't matter, that I'm invisible, that I'm insignificant, insert horrible things to say to yourself. Where does that come from? And why does it stick around? And why is it so concrete? And I guess how we'll kind of brought, breach, discuss that is the idea of if we repeat what we don't repair. So what does that mean? <laughs> Putting it pretty simply, when we continue to do the, the same old shit, we get the same old result without really understanding or knowing due to not repairing or investigating or reflecting, we tend to repeat the same patterns, the irrational thinking, have the same attitudes, challenges, disappointments, you name it. So if we go back, 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 back. We can change and challenge the old ways and the repetitive patterns we find ourselves in. But the more we have thought, felt, and behaved in a certain way, the more difficult it is to break the cycle. Let's go back to our old cave people. They purely relied on survival. So fear was the main driver in how we achieved survival. When we're under stress, trying to survive as the first humans, the nervous system gets really overwhelmed, start to lose control, and the body becomes overstimulated with adrenaline. And then the usual habitual actions we do in stressful events, otherwise known as the fight, flight, or freeze um, response, becomes really difficult to do anything besides that. So the most familiar reaction kind of lives on and prevails. We revert back to familiarity because the outcome is more predictable, right? So when the first humans saw a big old woolly mammoth, they either ran, they either decided to fight it, or they were so shocked that they were frozen, you know, couldn't do anything, stuck in their tracks. So they got really good at knowing how to survive based on those experiences. Fast forward to now, we are so much further along in the evolutionary journey, but the brain hasn't really adapted and carried on a lot when it's been so good at using these defense mechanisms to survive in these stressful situations. So obviously the brain's developed <laughs> exponentially, but we're fear-based creatures. We're survivally driven. We are instinctual. So 
what's really important to keep in mind is that the brain creates really strong, familiar pathways the more it goes through the process. So let's use tennis as an example, you know, be the serve and return, picking up what you're putting down. (laughs) The more serves you do, the more likely you are to start getting aces. The same is true for the more serves you face, the better you are to start returning them. The old serve and return. So we keep repeating what we've learned. The question stands, what if we keep repeating something that is an old safety defense or survival mechanism that starts to no longer work for us? Not good. So that's kind of, we're repeating what we're not repairing. So those messages are generally coming for us, right? And if we expand on this a little bit further, we start to relate it to our relationships, then I think it's going to start really filling in the gaps, really joining the dots for the people that are, you know, still questioning like, what the fuck, you know, why isn't this can connecting to my brain cells? Why isn't this joining all the dots for me? Um, so let's, let's unpack that. I think can be really, really helpful is how does this relate to relating? How does this compare to my relationships? What we learned growing up and what we thought and felt and did become the way we respond to the world. So for whatever reason, in your experience, in your upbringing, or even in your you know, later childhood or whatever, if you experience rejection or any sort of lack of love or missed out on things, then um, we tend to bring that into the future. Um, again, as this defense, as this like expectation that we've got to be wary and we've got to make sure that we look after ourselves and survive. The reason, well, we repeat the experiences that happened in order to regain power or control over it as an unconscious effort to try and change the outcome. So what I mean by that is if we get rejected when we were early on, you know, we didn't get the love that we deserved and needed, we don't like that. So we will keep going back into it. We'll keep repeating that in the hope that maybe we'll change it. And then that means we will be able to no longer be afraid because we'll change the narrative, you know, regain, regain that power, regain that control. In many instances, in an effort to gain love, we end up recreating the same treatment and playing out the same scenario. We might be getting rejected, rejected because um, we're going after similar love that was given in the first place. If you think about the question, where the hell did you learn how to be in a relationship? The answer is in school. We didn't learn it at school. We might have learned how to kind of socialize at school. We didn't learn how to be in a relationship at school. So our main teachers are those that raised us. So any dysfunctional patterns that get passed on from one generation to the next, we've got to take a look at that upbringing. Was there an emotional connection there? Was there emotional love? Could you talk about your feelings? Could you feel and express how you wanted to feel? Were you seen? Were you heard? And then we could think about it even further, some of this intergenerational side of things, is we don't have to go back that far to look at, well, what was my caregiver's upbringing like? Where were their lessons? How did they learn how to be in a relationship? So getting an idea of who you are and where you came from 
will assist you in many ways, right? What patterns you might be repeating based on some of the lessons that you've learned. You can't teach, though, what you don't know. We do not have to go back that far in history to see that parenting styles and the roles of the parent were really questionable. So two examples that kind of come to mind is the women's rights, (laughs) the ability to speak up, and men being told to not cry or show emotions. If we bring that into our future relationships, we would have a we have you know a relationship that sucks, a relationship that does not have, know how to communicate, because um, you've got those two polar opposites based on the lessons they've learned. I kind of argue that we repeat our experiences when we have distorted reality of how we see ourselves. So down to the core of that, sometimes deep and hidden beliefs, we're not lovable, not good enough, as I was saying before, you know, if that's playing out, then we might see it in our behaviors and our emotions during life events and then kind of see the aftermath of all that. Another example being you got a new partner. The feels are high. You know, you're loving it. And there's this infatuation stage, that honeymoon period, that you or the other can't handle creating distance or avoidance or it be, it, or it's, it still starts to become all too much. So we freak out. This relationship then ends and what we see at the time is a sudden change or loss in relationship and then pain, right? Lots of heartache. But perhaps a repeated pattern of familiarity through going in strong, wanting love, then running as soon as there is too much intimacy, the message might be, I don't deserve it. I'm going to screw it up. I'm not worthy. It's all too much. I'm getting flooded. This reminds me, blah, 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 blah. Not great. So some of you might've heard of uh, Bessel van der Kolk, you know, the trauma, trauma guru, um, wrote an amazing book called The Body Keeps the Score. And he kind of explores how people will get bored and lose feelings and have an emptiness or confusion that something's sort of missing unless the experience has some excitement you know, and provokes some fear or some danger that's similar to those past experiences. An example of this is always going back to the bad boy <laughs> or the person who is not good for us. We've all been there. Yet we thrive on the drama. We feed on the chaos and sometimes the toxicity of what that brings. In the complete opposite, though, when we find someone that ticks all the boxes, you think you have the relationship that you're wanting, that's healthy and that's stable, yet you sabotage it by getting bored or it not being exciting enough. Ugh, been there. But this is all part of this idea that we repeat what we don't pair. Um, so once we start to acknowledge and respond a little bit differently. We can break the cycle, change the way that we think, create these new pathways, repair. This is the repair part. That repetition and consistency starts to create this new way of thinking, eradicating the old behaviors and actually bring in a challenger to the I'm not good enough bullshit, to the you know limiting beliefs that we think about ourselves. We start doing that more and more and more until it becomes more and more comfortable because it ain't going to start comfortable because we might be very new. So to do this, we need to know our worth. We need to know that we're lovable. We need to know that we're okay just for showing up. So we stop going back to the people who are unable to give us what we deserve. 
Change doesn't happen unless change happens. So you have to look inward and at the ways that you're showing up. What patterns are there already? How can you look back and start to identify what's been going on? Once you start to know better, you can do better. Patterns get triggered. So we've got to find out what it is that's triggering you. Really look in to those repeated things. Okay, take a breath. Let's carry on. Hope you're still with me. This feels a bit heavy. So just go. Figure out how to fucking change this. Let's break this down. What the hell do we do with all of this? I think that comes down to three main things. We've got to get aware. So if this has give, given you some awareness, it's like, oh, yeah, this is making sense to me. You know, I've got some impacted self-worth. I definitely put myself over others. I don't really radically put myself first because, you know, I'm really concerned with, you know, you know, the next thing, achieving or you know, putting myself second or really kind of just not knowing and staying in that protection little bubble that we all kind of have. And it's safe. It's fear-based. You know, we want to stay protected. So awareness is this key because it's the beautiful tool that if we want to use it that way, it can keep us accountable. Once we start to know more and more, we can turn the light on instead of this darkness of not knowing why the hell does this shit keep coming up to me? Why do I just focus on the behaviors and like, oh, I don't want to do this behavior anymore when really it's a way that your thinking is that's going to create that change. So if that thinking is self-worth impacted statements, limiting beliefs about yourself, those negative, you know, self-criticizing messages, we can start to know, I can, I can see that now. So it puts a bit more light on that darker part of us. Through awareness, we can heal. We can grow, we can connect, we can thrive. Once we've got that awareness, you know, step number one, which, you know, that ignorance is bliss idea sometimes it's harder to have awareness because then you know what you've done wrong you're doing it again and again it's definitely me guilty um but from awareness we can then step into affirmations now i'm not talking about standing in front of the mirror and saying i am good enough i am lovable because that shit probably doesn't work it's definitely important but if we then go back into the toxic relationship the next day or we go in and trying to escape or with drinking or you know stuff, stuff that's sort of that temporary relief, that ain't, that ain't backing it up. So an affirmation is really challenging the beliefs. Start to replace the old messages with really positive messages because at the end of the day, you deserve that. And that little version of you that created some of this stuff might be really old or be really based on past experiences or relationships that were tough. We've got to be kind to that part of us. So affirming it can just be, you know what? You are. You are dot, dot, dot. You're smart. You're lovable. You're important. But yeah, don't mean shit unless you back it up. <laughs> this is where the third A, you know, we've got awareness, we've got affirmation, then we've got action. Affirmation is redundant unless we put it into action. We stay in dysfunctional settings, there's no point saying these things to ourselves. We've got to be able to challenge it. 
So we've got to be able to then kind of just say, what am I going to do to utilize this awareness and affirm what I need and then back it up with these, I guess, actions in how to really put ourselves first, radically put ourselves first. We just start by saying, only I create what I think and feel. And only I am in control of what I do and don't do. And the same is true for you. So let's kick into the next part, the last part of this episode, radically putting yourself first. How do we thrive? How do we start to thrive? Get out of surviving and start to thriving. (laughs) Let's jump into it. I think it comes down to two things. We need to start having boundaries. And we're going to start being able to identify what it is we need. Now, this is probably a buzzword, you know, boundaries at the moment. Everyone's talking about it. Um, if you haven't been hearing about it, you're not following the right people on the gram. But generally, probably the best speaker on this is Terry Cole. She wrote a book called Boundary Boss, and it is a cracker. Um, I wrote this before, before reading it. And I was like, wow, we are aligned in what we think. But, yeah, an excellent book and a huge shout-out to Terry Cole. Um, She's awesome. I'll put a little link to um, her page. You can watch her stuff. But um, boundaries are the kind of systems that we put in place to protect ourselves from being a victim, but also containing ourselves from being offensive to others. So this bit of information <laughs> is brought to you by someone that has to check himself all the time with what he needs and what his boundaries are. So I want to break this down into some really digestible bits of knowledge. Some of it's going to be hard to swallow. Definitely was for me when I first started doing this. So let's break it down really simply. If we assign a meaning to an event or an experience that occurred, what this means is that nobody and nothing can make you feel. One more time from the top. If we assign a meaning to an event or an experience that occurred, What this means is that nobody and nothing can make you feel anything. Nothing can push your buttons. Nothing can make you angry. No one is hurting your feelings. There is one exception to this rule is that if someone is intentionally trying to commit an offense to you, purposely being cruel or malice, right? But we create what we think, feel, and do. Nobody else and nothing else. When I first started learning that, I was like, what the? What? I was like, I couldn't believe it. In the same breath, though, as a person with codependent tendencies, I blamed so many other people for my thoughts, my feelings, and my behaviors, and blamed myself for other people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. (laughs) One perfect example, definitely for me, is if you had just done what I asked, I wouldn't be so upset. (laughs) Oh, God. So... I'm watching a movie. The movie doesn't make me cry. Me thinking about what that means when these two people are running in the rain, kissing each other. <laughs> what I think about is it's beautiful. I love love. That thought creates my feelings, which is my pain and my sadness or my joy and my love. What I kind of being able to then identify, this is why I really need boundaries. You know, they protect me. They protect me and my body internally, externally, protect my thoughts, my feelings, and my behaviors. So let's do a quick check-in with yourself. 
to see where you might sit with boundaries. Option number one, no boundaries. I do not protect myself. I do not have boundaries where I am always left unprotected. Number two, walls. Disguised as boundaries, but not. They are a complete protection and kind of guard so people cannot get in or get out. I get the safety around it, but, you know, that means no one's coming in. And that means you're stuck and isolated in those walls. Number three, you've got damaged boundaries. You know, crisscross, zebra boundaries. They're kind of blurry. They're like partially put in place that sometimes protect you, sometimes not. Um, you know, you protect yourself at work, but you don't protect yourself in relationship. You know, you can assert yourself here, but you are a pushover here. These are kind of blurry boundaries, right? Number four, where we all want to be, kicking goals, boundary boss edition, is intact boundaries. Protection is measured, kind of measuring that protection. We're aware of that protection. We can assess what is true and not true as it comes in. Get these intact boundaries that I'm talking about. We want to have a really quick example, right? When you start looking at what's the data, what's the event, what's the experience, what's happened, what do they see, what do they hear? That's first and foremost. That's really important. Get a really clear, specific idea of what's going on. Next, what did I think about when it happened and what did I feel? These are our thoughts which create our feelings, not the other way around. Our thoughts create our feelings. So when we see an event, we start to think. From there, we got to ask, what it is that I need from you? And really identifying what my needs are. Then we pause and we listen. We don't react. And we're able to then respond more appropriately. How we then follow it up? We assess what we do if the boundary isn't respected or it becomes violated. Setting some reasonable and achievable limits to things that reoccur. Don't set boundaries that you can't keep. That's, that's stupid. We want to set reasonable things like, I'm going to have to take a break if, if we keep going down this path, for example. The action then follows up what we intend to do if this keeps occurring, right? Simple, simple. So in summary, boundaries are like an invitation. They're not a limitation. They serve just as much for a piece of connection and intimacy as they do to protect and provide us safety. So really look at that. A good fence makes a good neighbor. So that's boundaries. Obviously a big subject. There's so much more to learn about boundaries. And if you do have any questions about some of that, cause it is quite hard to hear is um, reach out to me, man. I'm definitely definitely willing to talk more about it and express it more. And obviously it's a little bit more in the book on it too. So, but the other actionable item we really need to figure out is our needs. Oh, we, we got to talk about needs. So we all have needs, all of us. They all go kind of hand in hand with setting boundaries. We need to know what it is we need in order to set boundaries, right? Makes sense. So does that mean that we know what they are? Or do we feel we are allowed to have and meet these needs? When we kind of get triggered and go back into the cycle of having these core beliefs of I'm not good enough or I don't matter, 
messaging, we've got to pause and reflect and be curious about what it is that we might need when we go into that way. Think about it really simply like this. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. When you're cold, you put on a jumper. We know this. We know this. This makes sense. Well, guess what? The same is true for our other needs. To break it down really quickly, when I feel lonely, I need connection. Anger, or when I am angry, I need some space or like an outlet. Otherwise, someone's going to get it. When I am rejected or abandoned, which kind of hits the idea of uh, shame, then I need humility, reflection, and compassion. When I'm in pain, I need comfort and nurture. When I'm in fear or afraid, I need protection and safety. When I experience guilt, I need to apologize or make amends with myself or my situation. Really simplify the shit out of these things. Our emotions are trying to tell us something. Most of us don't have a mum or a dad that can do the same style of nurturing that we were meant to receive when we're young. Because we're adults now. We're past being swaddled and rocked and tucked in. You know, we might have some partners that do that, but we really need to be able to do how to do this for ourselves. This concept kind of called this concept is kind of called reparenting. We have to learn to nurture and soothe ourselves. To do that, we need to know what we need and meet those needs with compassion rather than resorting to the old behaviors that kind of want us to fail, you know, the defense mechanisms, reaffirming those really old beliefs. Let's think about it like we're young children, right? Go back to an age where you might have started thinking these messages to yourself. For me, it's around seven. I'm not good enough. started leaking into my brain. Um, we all look a bit like if, if a kid was saying that they're not good enough and they don't matter, you wouldn't just leave that kid to be upset, you know. You wouldn't just go, see you later, close the door and then walk out. You wouldn't put them down and say, why do you keep thinking that you're stupid, you know, reaffirming that shame to them. You wouldn't do that. I hope you wouldn't do that to a kid. When we're with children and they're upset, we want them to be seen. We want them to be heard. We want to nurture them. We want to care for them. We want to comfort them. When a kid like that starts to say that they're not worthy, I would hope that you would never want that child to, to think that ever again. So the same is true for you. You must tend to those needs when they come up and start to soothe them. Start to challenge that thinking. So this is that soothing of ourself. That's the best way to do this, is soothing ourselves. Want to break these patterns? We need to be able to soothe. In essence, to soothe is to calm the body and mind when you're overwhelmed or stressed out, right? Just important for us big kids as it is for our little kids. Just acknowledging that you need something, that you need soothing, whatever the wording that is that fits for you, you know, pat on the back, then that will start to change the way that we are with ourselves. And then we can embrace what's going on for us move into that wounded place or triggered place or impacted place. So when we look at that, when we're in these big, big emotions, 
what I say a lot of the time is if it's big, it's old. If it's hysterical, it's historical. We're having this big reaction to our partner not validating us or being rejected by a friend or a potential partner. Then we got to notice that that cycle is going to start again. If that core belief comes up, rears its ugly head that we might have re- received and, you know, put on place when we were, in, when we were young and it's being activated. Those core beliefs, you know, those shaming messages, the insignificance of not deserving, they were really difficult for a young version of us. So we need to provide space when we are put into that place and move in on that and go open up a place where we can sit with them, sit with that version of us that's really put back into that painful emotion. We've got to meet it with love, we meet it with compassion. So to support yourself, you need to notice, you know, observe, and you might be impacted. And instead of neglecting and abandoning, you need to nurture and we repair instead of furthering the rupture that's happening. This breaks a cycle. Break that cycle. A couple of tips for self-soothing. Move. Literally move. Move your body. Move it. Get those emotions out. Shake them out. Literally. Shake, shake, shake. Get that endorphin release. It can be as simple as some stretching, some yoga poses, some exercise, a run, going to the gym. Go and do it now. Put your hands in the air. Ooh, reach for the sky. Do a little dance. Whatever. Just move. Number one. Number two is look after you. Find what you need for you and start figuring out what it is that makes you feel good. What it is that's good for your mental health, your physical health, slowing you down. What's fun? What's of interest to you? What connection that can you bring? Some of that stuff is as simple as just grounding slowing down, put your feet on the floor, take your shoes off, have a shower, bring ourselves back to the body. That's an amazing way to look after ourselves. How we do that is number three. We're using our senses. When we're in our head, we're in our head, right? We need to get in our body to come back down to earth and ground. So the best way to do that, take some deep breaths, right? Really slow down our breathing and it'll center us a little bit. But then activating our senses, great one is the five sensory exercise. Name five things that you can see. Name four things you can hear. Name three things you can touch. Name two things you can smell. Name one thing you can taste. I can taste my coffee. Notice that. Now think. What were you thinking about? You probably weren't thinking about the shit that's going on in your head. You're focusing on you, focusing on those senses. Number four. Catch and release. We really want to be able to notice that when we get really tense, we don't do anything with that tenseness as it's hard to let it go. So a good way to kind of release that is bring it all in. Tense, tense, tense. Tense your body. Close your fists and really bring it in. Like actually tense it and then slowly let it go. Really slowly. It's called paired muscle relaxation. You can do that with your whole body. One leg at a time, two legs, whatever. Hold your whole body. Neck. Shoulders, jaw, tense it and release it. So have an awesome way of regulating the nervous system. And the last one, (laughs) treat yourself. Do what you need to do that makes you feel good. You know, whatever brings you joy, whatever brings you happiness, move in towards that. If you like going to the beach, go to the beach. 
even if it's winter, just get involved. Go by down, down by the beach and just watch. If that's what brings you joy and you're not doing it, change that shit and start doing it. So that's just it. When you do these things for you, you're putting yourself first. It doesn't have to be difficult, but it, it can be. There's a lot of limiting blockages and challenges and hurdles in life because that's life, right? You know, but the, the chaos is going to keep coming no matter what. So we've got to be able to set up a system, a nervous system that can be grounded, that gives us options to be able to calm down. And just by simply looking after you, simply thinking about some of these things, you can do you, you can put yourself first, you can say no, you can have boundaries, you can meet your own needs, you can understand your emotions, and you can start to thrive because you deserve it. We all deserve it. You're good enough. You matter. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise, especially yourself. And when you do, move in with compassion. Don't hate it. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. You know, these are old messages. These are really, really old messages. We've got to start to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Ned Brockman, what up? <laughs> and just go about it with peace. We're all learning. You know, we've got to step into our integrity, step into our authenticity by getting a little bit vulnerable. If this sounds like a bit of you, you want to read a little bit more, I break it down a little bit further. Some similar stuff because I love you and I love this podcast and I want to give you as much offering as I can in here for free. But the book is um, on sale now and um, you can find it in the link in the bio. And if you're really interesting, sign up to the Connection Crew, man. Get into it. Connection Crew is going to offer you those resources and that availability to be able to stay connected with the like-minded people that are just trying to feel better in themselves and then how they show up in relationships. There's a lot of things coming. We've got a big, big course on self-worth and how do we really kind of break that all down and dig in through a little bit of our trauma, but then also really being able to understand what's going on and then prevent it from hijacking our life and really taking ownership of what's been happening and then empowering and leading through how we want it to change. So hopefully we'll be back soon with some more apps and some more guests. Um, take care. Stay connected. Song choice today. I don't know if it's in Love Letters, actually, the reason with me at Love Letters Spotify playlist, but it is Let's begin now. probably the song of the book. Um, it's called Good Day. Enjoy. And I said, you know, instead of waiting for a good day to happen, you know, waiting around, the ups and downs, you know, I, I just said, look, we gotta have, we gotta have.